Chapter 15. <laughs> <laughs> the dreams. <laughs> oh, I, mate. I often, Why do you say chapter numbers? Appreciate it. The dreams, so supportive. I often arise from distinct, detailed, enjoyable dreams, feeling disappointed as I realise its events were only imagined. No matter how hard I try to slip back into slumber, I can never recapture the same situation. At 15, I seduced both Laura Summers and Judy Bloomsbury in one go. Together. I don't know why, but we were in the back room of a pinball parlour. The two most wanted women at my secondary school. They'd never noticed me before, but there we were, the three of us, having sizzling sex as someone played Space Invaders just outside. I woke up with my loins in the leather. <laughs> Though I wished that dream was a reality, I'd swap it for the time I was 10. Riding my scooter to the local shop, I saw a newsstand upon which the Herald Sun newspaper headline screamed, Saints sign $6 million man. As I read of how he was going to be our new full forward, I suddenly sat up awake to the stone cold truth. Instead of a sci-fi star with his own TV show, <laughs> the real papers that morning said St Kilda had signed a half-back flanker from Footscray named L.B. Smets. It didn't have quite the same ring to it as the $6 million man. I can't say whether it was a guess or based on actual evidence, but shortly after my dirty dreams began, Dad called me into his room, their room, as in where he and Mum shared, and showed me 200 bucks and a box of condoms in his bedside drawer. These are for you, but only if you need them, he said, in a swift, simple statement, which amounted to my lesson about life. No birds, no bees, no bullshit. And what was the 200 bucks for? I'd hate to think. I hate to say it out loud. Hold on. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so, well, that would, be putting, that would be putting thoughts in his mind or Well, that, that would be putting the cart before the horse. Well, literally. So he, uh, yeah. So he, he showed you a contraception in the form of a condom and then 200 bucks should you need to... Well, let's say, let's say, the, let's say it was a young lady, hypothetically, uh, and she and me got, got it on. And let's say she got pregnant and she didn't want to be pregnant and therefore she wanted um, me to help her. Yeah. Jesus Christ, that's a very heavy interaction with your dad in his bedroom. Well, like this is what's in the bedside table, condoms and 200 bucks. Well, unless the 200 bucks was to go and celebrate losing your virginity. <laughs> <laughs> you and your mates get a few beers in, high five all over the shop. I can tell you that conversation would never have happened in my household and never did. What, no birds, no beads, bees? No, no conversation about having sex so what's better, your dad saying nothing or my dad being brutal, perhaps, if that's what he was being? Oh, I think that probably your dad at least broaching the subject is is pretty good, at least reaching out to his son. I mean, even though there's a bit of blunt force in there, uh, you know, there was condoms available and and cash, and I suppose you had to work out what the cash was for yourself. But I had to work out what the condoms were for. I'd never seen yeah. them before. Of course. And your father can't go, well, this is the way you put one on. <laughs> I don't want to see that. <laughs> well, how are you meant to know? Yeah, fair enough. Like, you know, that there's a right way and a wrong way. How are you meant to know now? That little nub and end bit inside, out, out outside, in. Who knows? I've always, I've always disliked condoms. They speak highly of you. Back to yeah. the book. 
Australia was <laughs> Australia was not held in high esteem by the international showbiz set during the 1970s. Major musical acts rarely included us in their tour itineraries, and movie stars on promotional circuits hardly ever set foot on our shores. When Oscar Goldman announced he'd be arriving on a whirlwind publicity trip, it was almost as exciting as being given the $6 million man doll as a Christmas gift when I was 10. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man. Better, stronger, faster. That doll ranks alongside my first footy as the most perfect present I ever received. We would have preferred Steve Austin, the $6 million man himself, to visit Australia, but if we had to settle for the doctor who built his bionic bits, then so be it. And anyway, Oscar Goldman wasn't exactly unknown. After all, he had his own action figure too. True, it came with a briefcase containing confidential documents that exploded if you opened it the wrong way without the correct code. Kenner's new Oscar Goldman with exploding briefcase. I have a secret assignment for a $6 million man. It's in my briefcase. Careful, if it's open wrong, it'll self-destruct. Oscar Goldman with exploding briefcase, $6 million man and Mascotron, each sold separately. The way in which was explained in a secret set of mini instructions. Did you have a $6 million man doll? Yeah. Kenner's new $6 million man with bionic grip. Now, my dad, before he departed, had this great idea. So when I was about nine, there's a photograph of me standing by the Christmas tree in our family home lounge room holding the $6 million man doll still in the box, just looking like no person has ever been happier. And then at the age of 29, 20 years later, dad found the doll and asked me to take the photograph in front of the Christmas tree holding it again like I was the first time. And so that's a combo... It's a combo pair of photos up on the wall in our house. That is sensational. Now, did you have you read the story to me? Told me the story, or is it somebody else's story that you went to Melbourne Airport? Yeah. So hang on, Oscar yeah. Goldman. Right. So Simon and I talked Dad into driving us all the way out to the airport <laughs> in the hope that we might spot Oscar Goldman coming out of customs. We were surprised that Dad let us take the day off school. Maybe he wanted to have a look himself. I mean, everyone watched that show at the time. We were excited and we were also a bit embarrassed about the whole affair because it wasn't the $6 million man himself. So we kept it quiet from our friends. In the car, we sat silently, excitedly, autograph books in hand. Five miles from Tullamarine Airport, we hit an almighty traffic jam. It turned out that every other kid in Melbourne had talked their dad into taking the day off school too and no one got to see him at all as a result. Uh, on the news, we saw that Oscar, by the local media, seemed to get a bigger welcome than the Beatles. Like, when we were young, honestly, big stars never came out here. It was too far. It was too expensive. There wasn't enough population to to sell enough tickets or set enough eyes on a TV show for them to consider us worthy of pursuing, you know, to to, to progress their And their that's why projects. such a huge crowd would gather if somebody was going to touch down at Tullamarine Airport in Melbourne, everyone wanted to be there. I was a customs officer in 1986 and Boy George uh, was arriving at Tullamarine Airport and I was on duty that day and so we went onto the tarmac to await the arrival of Boy George and Culture Club who had had a num- series of number one hits. Karma Chameleon, Old Tumble For Ya. I tumble for you, I tumble for you. <laughs> the Church anyway. of the Poison Mind. <laughs> so... The victims, victims you know so well, you shine in your eyes, can kiss anyway. Go on, 
tell. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, chameleon. Anyway, so the plane that he was on wasn't going uh, to the normal terminal uh, to one of the aero bridges and then, you know, they would come down the finger into the customs hall. He was coming... Uh, the finger? The plane. Yeah, so basically when they come to the aero bridge, the aero bridge... The is aero like, bridge yeah, is like in-house terminology I'm first hearing okay. now. So the plane pulls up, yep. that extended thing that goes to the door. Oh, the arm thing that Jim Carrey runs out of and lands that, flat on his back from in Dumb and Dumber. That's the aero bridge. It's okay. I'm a limo driver. Yeah, go on. And then you go down the aero bridge and onto what is called or was at Melbourne Airport for customs officers and airport staff, the finger, and then you come down into the customs hall where the bags come out of the carousel. Where the dry mouth and the horrors begin, even if you know you've got nothing wrong on you. Whether you're Barlow or Chambers and you've got your gear strapped to your guts (laughs) and you're just waiting to be rumbled. Now, uh, so he was coming down the stairs in the cargo area. So we were down there in our cars uh, as customs officers on duty, fully uniformed, and behind us was a sea of heads against that cyclone fence and not just, you know, two or three deep, thousands of people pushing against that fence and it was starting to get pushed down. It was amazing that it didn't collapse because there would have been a flood of people, a stampede, people would have been crushed, it would have been awful. This is Eyewitness News, first in Melbourne. An airport erupted in frenzy as the pop idol arrived. Hundreds of his teenage fans screamed, wept, waved and yelled in an uncontrollable burst of emotion. But for airport officials, it meant security problems and the distraught fans were kept well apart from their idol. It's a miracle and Boy George and Culture Club worked the spell. A cold grey day in Melbourne, but they'd skipped school, camped out and made up in their hundreds for this, the biggest moment in their lives. Listen to these kids, Culture Club comes across more like a religion than just a band. But the screaming, the door opens and down the stairs comes Boy George. The screaming is of such a pitch, and this is teenage girls but also boys and adults, it hits you like a wave, it goes through you, and all of a sudden the excitement is just overcoming me. It's like, you're in a uniform, do not start screaming towards him. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, so if you had to just let your uh, natural want take I just place. Gone, no, unbelievable. Like run towards him in full adulation. He's so charismatic, that bloke. He's yeah, funny. But also, he's caustic. Let's go back to what cool. you were saying about Melbourne. This is a yeah. massive yeah. pop star, yeah. number one icon yep. coming down the stairs. He's metres away from me yep. and I live in little old Melbourne. Yep. You know, the the biggest thing that had happened to me prior to that was seeing actual dwarves on stage at Doncaster Shopping Centre in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. No wonder you are excited. No wonder I was excited. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> By way of explaining well, what no. it was like to live in Melbourne. I love Boy George, but I'm talking about proper massive pop star when he was someone, not a judge on The Voice. Hey, 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 no, 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 no,
good argument. Go on. Hey, hey, hey. No. Hey. No. Go on. Hey, don't. Don't start. Don't you fucking start. I'm all for I'm all for boy, boy George, and I've got a reason not to be. Oh, I, I love I love Boy George, yeah. but I want you to tell me the Boy George story again because it is awesome. I'm sure I've mentioned that. I know you're not a performing monkey, but it is an absolute corker, so please. All right. Okay. Right. I used to live in London for the best part of the 90s, the most part of the 90s, and at one point um, I realised no one was drinking with me anymore because everyone was uh, doing ecstasy. And uh, right. uh, that wasn't really my cup of tea. A pill or something scared me. And so I just stayed... Uh, you know, on the grog. You've and never experimented with narcotics. It's not really uh, much. I, at I think all. I was brought up differently. I don't think it was. Yeah. I don't think it was because my dad was a copper. It was just like every adult around you, teachers, footy coaches, mum and dad. They just mm. constantly tell you, you know, don't try it even once. Yeah, well, that's. It's like that, that was like really that, bad stuff to take drugs of any kind. I'm at this joint in London, <laughs> the hottest club apparently on the earth at the time, about '97. Remember the club's name? Yeah. Ministry of Sound. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so I wanted to buy a beer. And there's none for sale. And then I thought, well, I'm thirsty as. Can I have some water? Right? Yeah. That's all we've got for sale. Right. And then they told me it was Everyone's like. Everyone's on pingers. Yeah, they told me it was like 10 bucks for a bottle of water. I thought, no, I'll get some out of the tap. Tap didn't work. Because it's the only <laughs> way they could make money after the entrance fee was to sell water to you. They weren't going to let you have it for free out of the tap. Obviously, you're no. sweating. I think maybe ecstasy makes you thirsty, whatever. But one of Boy George's various, uh, you know, incarnations as an entertainer was that he DJed at Ministry of Sound. And th- at that particular club, at that particular time, the DJ's booth was in the middle of the dance floor, right? Right. And it was just this little cylindrical sort of desk that sort of came out of the floor. And he stood at it with his, you know, double decks, with his headphones on one ear and whatever. And... uh I'd got drunk, luckily. I didn't know I wouldn't be able to continue drinking, but I turned up blind. and Preloaded. Um, and I saw Boy George, who everyone else was being cool about or not even noticing because they were in their sort of ecky-driven, you know, communal funk, funk, funkosphere. And, uh, and I decided I was going to tell Boy George <laughs> all about how much I loved him and, and make him be totally aware of the absolute detail that I knew of his entire career. Yeah, and you would not have held back. You're very persistent when you decided to speak to someone. I admired him, and I couldn't believe he was like you know able to be approached. Maybe not. Maybe maybe he didn't want to be, but there was no one guarding him. You know, it wasn't normal DJ setup where you could you'd have to go up onto some sort of uh, on a landing and go behind a booth. He was just there in the middle of the dance floor. And I don't think that either of us could have been as open for our love of Culture Club at the actual time. It didn't fit with... No, we were. I was about 10. I found a photo yesterday of me dressed up as Boy George. And also I didn't know... Oh, right. I didn't know he... I didn't didn't know what gay was and I didn't know he was gay. You know, didn't occur to me either way. I just liked his song and I I liked him and I I thought, oh, well, of course he dresses like that. He's a pop star. They're all, like, eccentric. Yeah. I was 2021 and so it was seen probably as more girls' music or, hey, he's gay. And uh, in... My kind of like oove, my cohort. There was, you know, Aussie Crawl, Cold Chisel, uh, Akadaka, Akadaka, all that sort of stuff. And if you came forward and said, "Hey, I really love Boy George and Culture Club," that would have ground the gears a little. Well, when you say came forward, it'd be like, was that like coming out? Uh, uh, my name's My name's I, Lawrence Mooney. I'm a Culture Club fan. 
No, you know, I've been a culture club fan for in, the, in a conversation at the bar at the Bayswater Hotel. If you went, how good's boy George? Uh, the piano player, the piano player would have stopped playing. Right. Everyone would have turned around and gone. You just would have heard. <laughs> and somebody's, you know, boots on the floorboards. It's like you're not from round here, are you, Mister? <laughs> <laughs> right. So anyway, I go up to Boy George, right, in this otherwise Great. U- uber cool nightclub. And I, I, I wouldn't put it past me to have had a Bintang singlet on. Anyway, I was full bogan and probably still am. And um, I go up to Boy George and I'm full of beans. And I'm going, oh, Boy George, I love you. Like I bought all your music and I know the B-sides of all the singles and this and that and the other. And he just like, stood there like still DJing and occasionally sort of out of his side eye glancing in my direction. And uh, he was smoking a cigarette on one of those those really sort of fancy long sort of cigarette holders, whatever mm-hmm. those French people used to smoke in the movies. You put the cigarette in the end of the, what do you call it? Cigarette holder. Cigarette holder. Yeah. He waited till I finished, right? <laughs> and I was waiting for him to respond. And he responded by blowing the biggest cloud of smoke almost like a Hiroshima cloud of smoke into my face. <laughs> and my whole head just disappeared into another world of hurt. So he's just anyway, when the smoke, kind of when, like the magician's yeah. magic trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I sort of felt like, I felt like I should be angry. I felt like I should be angry or upset or insulted. But, like, I just couldn't even begin to have a, formulate a thought. But... I tell you what I do recall is when the smoke cleared, he was gone. <laughs> well, so it was a magic trick. It must have been, or else the the smoke was so the smoke cloud was so big and engulfed me so badly, or my shame was so deep seated that uh, I maybe imagined his absence instead of having to look him in the eye and and, and see the disdain. Begs the question: <laughs> Was he ever there? <laughs> 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 that, is, that is a possibility, isn't it? Yeah. You've imagined the whole thing. Remember that this chapter did start with dreams. Yeah, perhaps should end that I, way too. I remember when my father died, I used to have very vivid dreams of his, like, face quite close up. and you so, know, so did I. And my mate Colin Marshall, who was dad unfortunately died before my dad did, forewarned me of that. He said, mate, your mind will ease you. Into the idea, as you know, I went. I said yeah. to him, I think I, I think I asked him specifically, rang up with the purpose to say, how do I handle the death of my dad? Have you got any tips? And he went, he'll come to you in dreams, and then gradually those dreams will drift off, almost and, like you're being weaned so off to sort of help you with the abruptness of the uh, long-term permanent absence but of your in, dad. In the dreams, it was like I could make out his face, and sometimes it was close up, and I could feel like you know, like his nose almost on my face or I could smell him. And if you try to conjure up a memory of someone, it's very difficult to do. But in a dream, it almost comes to you perfectly and is so easily disturbed that it can just disappear just as quickly. And I used to have this recurring dream, which is kind of odd, that my dad would appear to me and without a shadow of a lie as an Indian man. So it was almost like, his, hang, on, hang on, like American Indian or no, no, continental no, as subcontinent? From, as a man from India. Okay. So an Indian man. Uh, so he would have dark skin. His features were exactly the same. And so I was left with this feeling of like 
was he previously an Indian man? Had you now his reincarnation? But he had spent time in India during the war, so there was this connection. But also, maybe it was a metaphoric thing of maybe it's about also me letting go, and he's going now, and he's you know in India or whatever. But he appeared to me quite a few times as an Indian man, and uh, and as a Sikh too. So he'd be wearing a turban. And there was this one very clear dream, and I know it sounds funny coming from a comedian, you're thinking, where's the punchline here? But it's a true story. And he was saying to me, you can fly. You can fly. And I, I, I didn't believe him. He said, just lean forward and fly. And so he's a, a long way from me, and I leant forward and I flew towards him, and as I got towards him, he was gone, and that was the beginning of him dissipating in my dream stuff. Whoa. Um, back to the book. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Fucking hell. Yep. Wow. Well, I, look, the dreams. So my dad's better than your dad. He taught me to fly. Your dad just gave you money for an abortion. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, come on. Oh. Oh. Okay. I did. That was a classically male thing. What? Rather than just sit with the emotion, I had to diffuse it by making a coarse remark. No, it was probably a bit of uh, levity required. Anyway, but luckily both of our mums are still with us, so we yet to deal with that experience. Yeah. Uh I know the podcasts are a bit eternal, so it's not about when we recorded or, or where or whatever. But yesterday was my mum's 89th birthday, so happy birthday to her. To Mrs Mooney, what was her maiden name? Her maiden name was Copac, C-O-P-P-A-C-K. So Olive Copac she was. Uh, and now, now Olive Mooney. Olive Mooney. Happy birthday, Mum. Well, Thanks for she's done a good job. you've done for me. Well, you're a beautiful bloke, so she's done a great job. If you're part of her legacy, mate, she's already lived a good life. That's a very nice thing to say. Okay, that'll do us, Lawrence Mooney, for today. I am having a ball, so uh, please join us on the next episode and tell your friends. Bring some friends along. Thanks for joining us. Okay, if you haven't given us a rate and review, now's the time. We're counting on you.